Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. Our topic today is diversity and inclusion. I'm Kelly, and I've got Ryan in the co-host seat today. And we are joined by Helgi Aford and Fatima Kaludi. Helgi and Fatima's bios are posted to the podcast module. We can start with each of you giving us a quick introduction and giving us an idea of the path that brought you to where you are today. Fatima, we'll start with you. Hi, everyone. I'm Fatima Ayushi and her pronouns, and I'm the founder and CEO of Kaludi Consulting. Um, so I do a lot of work around equity, diversity, and inclusion specific to workplaces and service provision, um, and a lot of stuff around education and training, content, consultation, and then strategic planning. So kind of the uncomfortable conversations that we should be having, but often don't know how to start. That's where, where I come in to support. I physically reside in Edmonton, Alberta, which is Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwitsi, Wiskaiken uh, is a known name or lesser known name uh, for the Edmonton area. And then maybe I'll pass it over to Helgi for an introduction too. Well, that's probably the hardest question you're going to ask of me today. Where, how did I get to where I am? I guess I started off, uh, I was born in Iceland. That's where I got a name like Helgi. I was named after a guy who was able to jump further backwards with all his armor on than anyone else in the country. And my dad thought that was a good thing to be famous for, I guess, in the, in the age of swordplay, it might be. But like my ancestors, I've spent much of my time since traveling. As a child, I lived in India. I lived in Papua New Guinea, where I taught at the university for a number of years. I worked in the oil patch in Yemen. I have worked as a program manager in Ukraine. I've spent many years in Indigenous communities as a health promotions person. And so I've done all these things, and I finally end up now as, um, it looks like by accident, but maybe it isn't, I end up with clinical ethics with Alberta Health Services. And in that capacity, I work in a hospital that's very diverse, the Peter Lougheed in Edmonton. And so we have a very diverse workforce, but also a very diverse uh, population base. And it gives me a lot of chance to um, exercise my interest and uh, in uh, diversity and inclusion issues. So happy to be here. Happy to chat. Uh, great. Thanks for, for that, both of you. So we can maybe talk a little bit about our path and, and how we ended up where we are today. So the foundation for, I think, all of our equity, diversity, inclusion training has really been on person-centered care and recognizing that to provide good care, it's about focusing on each individual and their needs and their values and preferences and concerns, and that we need to work with people. So in our previous conversations, we've heard these themes of diversity and you know, started to talk about the importance of inclusion. And I'm looking forward to hearing both of your perspectives on diversity and inclusion and how we as pharmacy professionals are going to move forward. And Fatima, I'll start with you. So what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? And how are these concepts important in the context of person-centered care? You know, when I think of diversity and inclusion, I always think of those two words with the term equity as well. And, and I'll kind of explain why. When I think diversity, it's it's more looking at the identities and the range of identities of people and all the different layers to someone's identity, whether they're it's their racial or ethnic identity, their religious identity, their gender identity or gender expression um, and so forth. So there's lots of different uh, dimensions to our identity and those broad dimensions and the range of them is what makes up diversity. So we know diversity is around us. We know diversity exists in ways that we don't see it. We don't always see people's identities or the layers of their identities. When it comes to inclusion, inclusion is being intentional and making sure people feel 
involved and uh, supported and appreciated regardless of their identities. And so bringing and being able to bring your full true self to the spaces that you're part of, that's a sense of inclusion, feeling treated the same as everyone else and supported the same as everyone else and, and valued the same as everyone else, that's inclusion and belonging. And then equity is making sure that we are able to offer that inclusion in a way that makes sense based on people's needs. People might have different needs. And when we take an equitable approach, we're making sure to uplift and support other people based on the needs that, that they have and also based on the, the privilege and access to privilege that they have within a society. So when someone might have um, lesser privileges in some areas, they might need a little bit more support to get access to equal outcomes. And so that process would be the equity part. Okay. Oh, and thank you for the reminder about the fact that equitable doesn't necessarily mean equal. I heard you say that sometimes it means a little bit more support, right? So more support to make it equitable. Helgi, same questions coming to you. So what does diversity and inclusion mean to you and, and how is this important? It means asking appropriate questions so that you understand the person in front of you and not viewing them through a stereotype of their skin color or their religion or their sexual orientation or their uh, abilities. I, and I think this is what often happens. Um, I really enjoyed Fatima's definition and I sort of endorse all of that. I was born in Iceland. I behave and look like an Albertan and probably like many, but you can't really tell from looking at me all of the other preferences and values that I have. And I think so often we, we, we make these, and we kind of have to, because it's like that unconscious bias. You're making a quick assumption because you don't have a time to do it. You're, you're, you're behind a counter and people are asking for medication. Do you really have time to engage in a history lesson about their family? But you have to consider, because there's certain things that we have to know about our patients. And it's, what are their understanding of the illness? How do they uh, expect you to behave? What do they want you as an expert? Or do they want a coach? Or do they want a friend? And you got to get a pretty quick beat on that. And so I spend my time helping people understand how cultures and identities differ and, and on what dimensions. So I, for me, what diversity and inclusion means is looking at that person self and trying to understand their identity and all the various dynamic and shifting themes that go into that identity. Okay. Oh, I'm excited to deep dive into how we're going to begin to start understanding. Sorry, I'll pause. Ryan, did you have something you wanted to add there? I don't know why I didn't realize this, but it's something that I realized within myself is that any one person or individual could have multiple identities. Person, like for myself, I'm a person of color. I'm somebody who deals with mental health issues. So I guess when we're dealing with somebody, it's quite easy to like identify them as one particular thing, maybe based on their, you know, skin color or whatever, but really they're, they're multiple things. So the question that came in my mind is like, how do we balance all of those different identities when dealing with, with our patients? I'm happy to comment on that actually. And I, I'm glad you mentioned it, right? Um, because we all hold so many different parts of our identities, some that are visible and some that are not. And, you know, like you said, that the visible part is you're like, I'm a person of color. People can see that. And then what's invisible is everything else that they can't see. And so, you know, when we are dealing with our, our patients or, or any type of people that we're supporting or even our colleagues, we always want to make sure that we're not assuming what people need based on their identity. Exactly like Helgi said, it's really important to look at what are people telling us they need and how do we support them based on that and not based it on identities, but then also recognize the spaces we hold privilege and the spaces that we don't. And how do we uh, to leverage that privilege as allyship? Um, so 
for me, I'm a Muslim woman of color. I wear hijab. So there's lots of spaces where I don't hold privilege. I'm a child of a, a refugee. And so there's there's lots where I don't hold privilege. There's also lots where I do. Um, you know, I, I've lived in Canada my whole life. I have the dominant Canadian accent. I'm educated. I have a job. I'm uh, able-bodied. I'm cisgender. I'm a straight woman. So there's lots of spaces where I hold privilege as well. And so recognizing when I hold that privilege, how do I leverage it to be an ally for those who don't? And when I don't hold privilege, how do I seek out that support from my allies? And, and then, of course, looking at the power structure when we are dealing with patients and, and are providing a service, there's a level of, of power imbalance there. And then thinking about even in that, what is the power that we have in that space? How do we leverage that to be allies to people, especially for the parts of their identity that we don't know about or we don't see? How are we making sure we're asking these open-ended, broad questions so that they can let us know what they need and feel safe to let us know what they need? Um, as opposed to what we think they might need. I'll jump in because I think that's a really important point. And the way you deal with a power distance or a power um, privilege is not to give it away. You have the power, you have a duty as a pharmacist to ensure that you get the right medications and you, there are certain medications that you would recommend and you would discourage. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to give up that power and say, oh, you get whatever you want. That's not the way you deal with that power difference. The way you deal with it is to show that you have that privilege and you're in that place. So give space for that person to talk about their understanding of the illness, their fears, their worries about it, the role of their family in making this decision and all those kinds of things. And that, so that's very important to recognize that we have that power distance and that it, it engenders a fiduciary duty on our part to act in the best interests of our patient. But we don't solve that by giving away the power. We have that role. People count on us to have that expertise. If we didn't have it, we wouldn't we we wouldn't have a, a role to play in their in, in their health. Oh, okay. There's lots to think about here <laughs> and lots to unpack. I've heard terms like privilege and power distance. And we've got to spend some time talking a little bit more about power distance. I think I need a little bit more substance to it. And I'm not sure if this is a common experience, but it is mine, is that sometimes when I'm in something. I don't maybe have an awareness of it, right? And so Fatima, I'll start with you. Can you help us understand what the privilege and power of a pharmacist and a pharmacy technician looks like? And what might the people that are coming to our pharmacy be experiencing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we look at privilege, oftentimes it's something that we're granted, um, usually without needing any additional effort on our part. Um, and we're oftentimes granted that privilege because of who we are, what our identity is, and what role we play in a society. Sometimes we can earn privilege by going to seek out certain levels of education and knowledge and, and doing things that earn our privilege. But then the privilege that's based on identity, we can't necessarily earn it. Um, so oftentimes people will have privilege that are, is granted to them based on their identity. And other times it'll be what, what they've had to kind of seek out. So when we look at someone who is educated in a position of a pharmacist, for example, there's parts of their privilege that they've had to earn. They've had to earn the knowledge that they've had to invest resources and time and, and money into getting that privilege of knowledge, getting that access to having that power to support somebody's uh, well-being, somebody's health and somebody's care plan, essentially. So there's privilege in that space that, that they have to earn. 
but there's privilege in that space that they might not have had to earn. So based on their identity, it might've been easier for them to get to where they are um, in comparison to someone who's had challenges that they didn't have to experience. So things like, for example, if you uh, went to pharmacy school here in Canada and you were born and raised in Canada and if English is your first language, it probably is a little bit easier for you to go through pharmacy school than somebody who's learning English while going through pharmacy school. So that's a privilege that's based on someone's identity. Um, another privilege that could be based on identity is maybe you are someone who is attending pharmacy school who is able-bodied and you have a counterpart or a classmate that, that has a physical disability that they're living with. And it made it that much harder for them to get to and from classes. They've had to maybe miss some classes because of transportation challenges and so forth. So there's certain privileges that you might have had access to to even get this level of education that you've had to earn. There's also going to be lots of spaces where we don't. Um, you might have had that privilege of speaking English fluently and, and having the ability to get the physical ability to get to class on time and attend your classes. But maybe you didn't have the financial abilities and you were also working two part time jobs outside of school and didn't have the time to study. So there's places where you didn't hold privilege. Um, so again, being mindful of, of where you do and where you don't. And then thinking about when you do show up to your interactions with patients, what type of privileges might your patient have and what are the types that they might not have? Is it easy for your patient to come back three hours later to pick up a prescription or maybe they don't have that, that privilege of time or, or, or transportation to be able to do so? Um, maybe they don't have the ability to communicate their needs or understand the side effects of a medication, for example, because of language barriers or communication barriers such as needing sign language interpretation that, that isn't necessarily offered. So there's lots of things that we need to take into account with the privileges we have, but then also the disadvantages or lack of privileges that the patients and the people we interact with might have as well. Oh, thank you for framing it that way too. I've sometimes felt guilty about the privilege I have, and I appreciate how you framed it that way and also reminding me to acknowledge, to think, reflect about it. And, um, and that's how I move forward. Privilege is not a bad thing. It's about how you use it. So if you're using it to uplift and support others, then that's actually allyship. You need to have privilege to be an ally. Otherwise, you can't be an ally. So privilege on its own is not what's bad. It's what you do with it. Um, it, it could be made something negative and discriminatory, or it could be made something very positive and, and uplifting of others. So I just wanted to add that. Such an important point. Thank you for that. Okay, Helgi. So is privilege different from power? Can you tell me more about this, the power distance that you spoke of? And then we need to talk about, you know, how we manage this privilege and this power, which you've already alluded to, but I just want a little bit more. <laughs> power distance was a concept that came out of some research done in the 70s and 80s by Geert Hofstede. And what he tried to look, what are the differences between cultures? And one of them he came up with five and later six, but one of the key ones is power distance. Cultures differ in how they manage the roles in society. How does a boss treat a subordinate? How does a professional like a pharmacist treat the patient? And cultures have very deeply embedded notions of how that should happen, how that power should happen. So in a high power distance culture, the idea is that the, the, the boss is a good, uh, is, is like an uncle. He looks out for, and it's usually a he, looks out for the employee. In a low power distance culture, like the one I'm from, people are basically equal. They may have different roles, but the boss would be a collaborator with me, would consult, and would have very different ideas. And so the boss would come to me and say, gee, Helgi, what do you think we should do here? I'd be really comfortable. When in Yemen, my Canadian counterparts went out uh, with their Yemeni employees and said, uh, gee, Mohammed, what do you think we should do with this pump? He says, you guys send us all these bosses. They don't know what they're doing, what terrible bosses they are, because they don't tell us what to do. 
and it wasn't true, but it was very different expectations of how you should manage the necessary power differences in any situation. And we're talking about a clinic here, but for a pharmacist, for a professional, what I'd be work, uh, very interested in is how does the patient, do they want to be told by you what to do, or do you want to be consulted? So I had a, a friend of mine, I uh, was delivering babies at the Peter Lougheed hospital. The baby was stuck. The woman was from Somalia. So my friend goes in there. She says, ma'am, your baby was, is stuck. We can use forceps. Here's the pros and cons. We need a C-section. Here's the pros and cons. What would you like to do? The woman starts screaming at the interpreter, and we have to talk about interpreters here. Uh, starts screaming at the interpreter, get this woman out of here and send me a real doctor who knows what to do. <laughs> now, my friend was doing exactly what you would do in a low power distance culture. Here are the options. I'm the expert. Here's the options. Which would you prefer? You're involving them in there. You treat them as an equal. Whereas what she wanted, what she expected of a physician is to be told what to do. And this doctor wasn't telling her, so clearly they weren't competent. Now, Neither one of those things are true. They're just very different ways of managing the power differential between um, a clinician and, and, and a patient. So I heard you say that it's not about giving up our power, then the power that we had, correct? Well, it, it, yeah. I mean, I think we have a responsibility to give that information, give our expertise that we've spent so many years developing. And people count on us to do that. Yeah but rather sharing it. So we're sharing this with the person that we are providing care to? Well, it, it, well it's, it, it's, it's tricky because your interaction as a pharmacist is pretty limited. Like, I mean, how, how much time do you have? <laughs> Seven minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's about it, right? So you're not going to have this great epiphany during that time. And so, so my experience is what you have to do is negotiate what's going to happen. I'm going to give you some options and I'm going to ask you to make a decision on this because that's how we do things in, in this clinic or in this, you know, saying in this country kind of outs them as, as, as a stranger. So I would just say, what I'm going to ask you to do is make this decision. And they may just say, well, wh whatever you recommend, you're the expert. Don't be uncomfortable with that. Say, okay, make sure you give them the information that they need to, to know and so that they can make an informed consent. But I think it's really hard when we try to make other people follow the cultural patterns that we have. And I think that would be really unfair because it makes others very uncomfortable. And that's when you get people not taking their meds, right? We, we tell them and they're not, they're gonna, they won't disagree with you because that's impolite. And you don't talk to somebody with more power distance like that. Or you don't ask questions, but then you don't take the medication. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fatima, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I guess I'll just say, um, you know, I think it's it's really important to be mindful of that interaction, right? Like that that perceived power distance can also be very perceived. It might be that it, it's that person's expectation or what they're interpreting from the interaction. So even being mindful of that and how you might come across, you know, um, if a patient comes up to the counter and is dropping off their prescription and they have all sorts of questions and they they sense that from the body language, from the nonverbal cues that the pharmacist is in a rush and they don't have time for you because they're important and they're busy, then it kind of, it, it makes it that much harder for someone to ask the questions that they have or get the support that they need. So that could actually also be perceived. And it might not be that the pharmacist or that the provider is intending to have that power distance, but it might just be that by virtue of the environment, it might be interpreted that way. So also just being mindful of the way we come across with people. You might be in a clinic setting and you're tired and you've had a long day. And that might come across uh, in a sense that the, the patient or the person that you're providing care to also senses the importance of your time and doesn't want to bother you. And we might not intend to come across that way, but 
also just being very aware of the impact and um, and what that might do and how it might be interpreted. This is kind of a perfect segue. Actually, I think we've already started talking about where I was kind of hoping we could shift to next. Um, if Ryan, if you're okay to, to forge ahead, we've spent a lot of time in our previous podcast conversations chatting about safe spaces and being culturally safe and what does cultural safety look like. So I kind of want to go here next. And you've already given, both of you have given us some really good things to start thinking about, you know, being mindful, being aware of these privilege and power differentials. Let's though talk a little bit more about safe spaces and and what this looks like. So Fatima, I'll come to you. What does it mean for a space to be safe and, and inclusive? Yeah, I think it's really important, um, like Helgi said, to, to have that situational awareness and read the room and read the interaction. It will look different for different people. And when somebody comes into a space or enters a space, they're bringing all of their past experiences, potentially past trauma with them in the way that they show up and interact in that space. And it will inevitably influence the way they interpret the space as well. Um, so we also want to recognize that there's ownership on both sides. And, you know, to, to always just be intentional and opening with that warmth and that friendliness and warmth and friendliness can look different for different people, um, but in a way that feels genuine and right for you with, of course, boundaries and expectations around body language and physical touch and physical distance and all those things. But being genuine and warm in those interactions, being present in the moment with the person that's standing in front of you or sitting in front of you or whatever they, wherever they are in that space, that you are present with them. Oftentimes we get quite busy, we get quite burnt out, quite distracted. We're trying to manage multiple things at once. And that can be misinterpreted by the person that is on the other side of our conversation. So being there present, actively present, warm, engaging, open and asking um, the open-ended questions. One thing I always caution when it comes to trying to be inclusive and culturally competent, we might ask questions of what somebody might need because of assumptions we might have about their identity. But again, back to the earlier points we talked about of keeping those questions open-ended and asking everyone, what do you need? What is there anything I can offer you? Is there anything that can make this supportive for you, whether it's this conversation, whether it's, do you prefer that we go off to the side and have a consult? Um, do you prefer that your family members or the people that are accompanying you today are part of this conversation, but just really being present in the moment with that person and not making them feel like you're just trying to get them in and out as fast as possible, which I know sometimes is the case, but we can do it in a way um, where we still get them in and out quickly but still also get to have that, that human personal interaction to bring that kind of human connection back into those interactions. What I think is interesting, well, first I'll have two points. First is on the trauma. People are traumatized. We have a lot of people that come into our health system now, whether it's trauma and how they got to Canada, the trauma they experienced back home, the trauma here of racism or whatever. When someone's traumatized, you often develop what is called minority stress. If you've been treated differently because of your gender, your color, your what, whatever your origin, your accent, and you're anticipating it. So every new interaction sort of shortcut this, you take a really aggressive approach. Look, I need this. Well, what did I do to you, bud? Like, I mean, I didn't do anything wrong here. And so sometimes people who are traumatized, they have that defensive sort of aggression and they can speak quite harshly. And because they, in their head, you've already disrespected. You're just part of all the other people who've disrespected them. And so I think it's really important that we give people a little, we cut them a bit of slack. 
because maybe in their nervousness, their frustration, or their past trauma, they um, are anticipating a hard time. And so they treat you in that way. And we just have to sit there and say, you know, it sounds like you're really concerned about this. And there's ways of de-escalating that, which I think is important. So I think that's the interesting thing for me, because I'll tell you in the health system right now, um, well, Fatima and I are working on a toolkit right now because we get so many really outrageous requests from patients toward providers that are really rude, very sexist and racist. How do you deal with that? And sometimes that's rooted in trauma. And it's not that we don't have to be so offended. We can say, well, that's you know their experience. And, and we, we can't put up with it. We don't allow ourselves to get spoken to or you know, harassed, but we, have, we can cut them a bit of slack and figure out where it's coming from. So that's my first point. The second point is, making a safe space. Have you ever played a game and no one told you the rules? <laughs> Often when people come into a new setting, a new country or a, a new environment or a hospital or a pharmacy, perhaps, and you're playing a game, but you're playing against with the rules that you already know. And so when you're in a new situation, there's, uh, oh, we, we're allowed this. What about this? Uh, could you send me, uh, can I get a refill? No, we need a doctor to, to, to refill. What do you mean for that? Just come on, come and do it. And so when you don't understand the rules and they don't work in your favor, you can get very frustrated. And so maybe as part of it is understanding the rules of the system and how things get done. That can be, that can make it feel very unsafe if you think you're being uh, denied something be, for reasons you don't understand. It makes perfect sense to that person on the other side of the counter, but it doesn't make sense to you. And then what that looks like when the rules change, because, yeah. you know, I've had that happen too. <laughs> I have young kids, <laughs> rules change all the time. <laughs> well, what we found, what we found with COVID is, you know, we had people at the beginning, at the front of hospitals saying, you got to wear a mask and stuff. It's one thing to say, put your mask on, wash your hands, put, take that mask off, wash your hands, put it on. I just wash my hands, do it. Or you could sit there and say, well, you know, you've got some bacteria on your hands and we don't want that on your new mask. So take the old mask off sanitize your hands and then put the new one in there. Oh, okay. Happy to do that. And you see the difference is one is just saying what the rules are. The other one is let's give some context of why we, why we're doing this. I don't need to do this. I'm coming in. Well, you're actually, you're going to be visiting a patient who's on the oncology unit and everybody there is compromised immune systems. If they get sick, they may die. So we really need you to take care to, to not. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's, it's it, other than say, you must do this. Give them the reasons. And I think showing respect to people and most people are going to respond really well. Okay. The rule and the reason for the rule. Okay. I like that. Uh, if I can ask a question actually regarding like, I think a lot of the advice that we, we've heard so far um, regarding this is our interactions with like patients or people that we might only see for like a few moments in time. For someone like myself who works in a pharmacy, but in a hospital basement and doesn't really have any patient interaction, how did these strategies look if we were going to say deal with a coworker or a boss or a manager? <laughs> I got to tell you, when I started off many years ago as diversity educator with Alberta Health Services, they hired me to train clinicians to deal with patients. By month three, I was spending 50% of my time dealing with diverse workforce <laughs> because that's it's just as important because we have very different ways of managing people. Everything from power, does, does the boss tell you what to do or ask you what you think the job to be done? Very different. Do you, uh, how important are rules? Well, in some cultures, rules are very flexible and they're applied based on relationship. Not in my culture, one rule, all people, all the time. And if you ask for an exception, you're corrupt. So we have completely different ways of managing all those realities of workforce. So how the boss treats you, how you do conflict management, how you, how much information you should 
communicate and all those. So I think I, I think it it is ripe for analysis to, to recognize they're not doing it just to make me mad. <laughs> and I what I what I the, the rule that I try to apply to myself is always take the most charitable interpretation of that person's actions. Did they do it just because they're lazy? Or is it because they have a different understanding of this situation? And if it is a different, how do they see it? It actually opens up a, a way more inquisitive, more constructive approach to the problem. So yeah, no, I, I think I think it's one of the hidden challenges, especially as we try to hire more and more people from nurses and physicians and pharmacists from other cultures. And we think everyone's the same. We, we all think we're playing the same game, but we have different ways of playing that game. And then we all come together and then we get really surprised why do they say that? Why are they doing this? They never talk to me. They never invite me to their potluck dinners. And so how much should be shared? What's an appropriate amount? And so, yeah, those things uh, really can affect the workplace and the trust we have. And then there's language, but I, I think we should talk separately about language. Yeah. And I'll just jump in here to say, you know, I'm sure there's folks tuning in being like, how can I possibly know everybody else's rules and everything there is to know about every culture and the way they communicate and the answer is you actually don't have to. And it would actually be quite problematic to try to. People are not monoliths. And, you know, somebody that comes from a certain country or a certain identity might not play by the same rules as, as what we think they'll play by within that group of people. Because again, our identity is so much more than our geographic location, our ethnic origins. But there's so many more uh, things that play into it. There's different ways that different communities deal with challenges that communicate in different styles. But even within our workplaces, um, you'll notice the way that your team might communicate very differently than a team that works down the hall, right? And so just being very aware that there's no possible way to know everything there is to know about other people, which is why, you know, I kind of go back to how to create that safety is about just taking that moment to read the room, taking that moment to engage with the people you're around, have that personal connection with them and get to know what makes sense to them. In team dynamics, I find it always helpful to have that conversation with your coworkers of how do you like to receive feedback? What are the things that are important to you? Some people, when they join a meeting, they want to go right to the agenda and get things done. Other people, <laughs> when they join a meeting, they're like, let's just chat and catch up for a while. And so the, even personality differences come up, so many different things come up, and it's not possible to know everything and anticipate everything. What is possible is to ask the right questions in the right ways and to make sure those questions are broad and friendly and human enough that people don't feel othered because of them or don't feel treated differently because of those questions and making sure we're not only asking those questions of certain people. One thing that I end up having a lot of conversations about is asking people the question, where are you from? You know, there's a lot of controversy around this question and looking at asking someone, where are you from, um, how that could be a microaggression, especially in certain contexts and settings. And then on the flip side, people are like, well, I want to get to know my coworkers and I want to get to know their identities. And so, you know, one thing that I always share is you can get to know people in the way they want to share with you. So instead of ask, asking someone, where are you from, you can say to your coworker, hey, tell me about yourself. And they share with you what's important to them. They share with you the parts of their identity, the parts of their values and their beliefs and their education and everything that's part of who they are. They share it with you in a way that they choose to, and they have the control of how much they do or don't share with you. When you keep it as broad as tell me about yourself. So for me personally, when people say, tell me about yourself. I, it, it depends on the context. If it's about work, then I'll tell them about my professional history. It's outside of work. I might say, you know, this is what I do for work. Um, 
if people say, you know, tell me about your family or tell me, tell me more about you. That's when I'm happy to share, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a child of a Palestinian refugee. You know, that's really a huge part of my identity that I'm excited to share with people. But when someone says to me, Fatima, where are you from? And they're not asking anyone except for me because I'm the only one that looks different. That's when I kind of have fun with it, to be honest. They're like, where are you from? I'm like, Edmonton. <laughs> no, where, where are you from? And I'm like, well, Castle Downs. No, where did you grow up? Well, Ontario. Well, well, where did your parents live before they came to Canada, California? And I just kind of keep going just to see how far it'll go until I get to the real question that they want to know um, is why, why do you look different than me and what makes you different than me? But this is their nice way of asking it. So again, avoiding those more targeted questions, keeping it more broad, asking people what's important to them, what they like to share with you. And that's the best way we can engage with our colleagues, with our patients, with anyone that we interact with really. I'm just going to stop for a sec. First of all, Fatima, I love how you've reframed that. Where are you from? A question that I've said, I don't know how many times into more of an open-ended, I heard you say use open-ended questions. Open-ended is tell me more. Okay. Tell me more. I just want to ask this. When, when do I do this in a pharmacy? You know, when, when is it appropriate for me to, to do this? Because, you know, first of all, if someone's dropping off a prescription, I'm not sure that I'm going to launch into, <laughs> tell me more about yourself or do I, I don't know. Tell me when I do this. Of course. And I think, yeah, it depends on the context and setting. This is more, tell me more about you or tell me about yourself is in place of if you were going to ask where you're from, you probably wouldn't ask that in a pharmacy interaction either, um, especially at a traditional uh, pharmacy setting. But what you might do is say, you know, hey, we're going to get your prescription ready. We'll be back in about 15 minutes. In the meantime, is there anything I can do to support you? You know, maybe they do need some support and during those 15 minutes. Maybe they're, they're feeling anxious. They need to understand the prescription a little bit more. You can take that time to explain the side effects and what to expect and so forth. So again, keeping it open-ended as opposed to asking the targeted question of, well, this person has a different accent. So therefore, I think they probably don't speak English and I'm going to ask only that person if they understood what I'm saying. Um, so for example, about a month ago, I had to take my mom to the ER and she was having some difficulties breathing and some chest pain. And so she couldn't speak. She couldn't, she could hardly breathe. Like she, she couldn't speak. And so I rolled her in on the wheelchair and I went to the triage nurse and, um, uh, and I said, you know, here's my mom's ID. Here's her health card. Here's what she's dealing with. And I'm just trying to get her right away assessed so we can see if she's okay. And the nurse says to me, does she speak English? And she's saying this because I'm speaking on behalf of my mom. So to her, the assumption was my mom doesn't speak English. Now, would she have had the same assumption if we look different than the way that we do, right? What would have been great in that moment is if instead the nurse had said, does your mom need any support with communication? Because that can look like all sorts of things. And it's actually more helpful to ask that question because at that point I can say, she has difficulty speaking and breathing. So when you're asking me about her ability to communicate, that's also part of a medical assessment that's required. Um, whereas when you tell me, does she speak English? That's not really helping anything for her medically. It's just trying to assess, do we need to get a translator? Which right now is not the most important thing. She can't breathe, right? Um, and so again, the way we word questions, instead of saying, can she speak English? Um, and, and more so saying, is she having challenges communicating on her own? is more important of a question in that context. Now, 
Um, I will say we went on to have a great interaction with that nurse and she was fantastic. But those are the little things that make people kind of just be taken aback in that moment. Um, even my mom, who was having difficulties breathing and speaking, was like kind of frustrated. Like, why does she think I don't speak English? Like, there was nothing that said I don't speak English. So why why was that her reaction? And so you know, we, we pick up on these things, people who experience these things over and over pick up on it quite quickly. And it does really influence the interaction. It does really influence the way somebody shows up, you know, in the moment where we are worried about my mom's well-being and um, her, her difficulties breathing and speaking. The last thing I need to be reminded of is that people look at us as different, that people look at us, uh, at us as other than the norm. I also appreciate that you reminded us that that question, the way it landed, didn't land well. And that interaction went on to actually be a positive one. So as a healthcare provider, I'm probably going to (laughs) fall. I'm going to ask something the wrong way. And there's still opportunity to connect. As we all do, right? We all make mistakes. I am, I go into sessions. I, I do educational workshops. I, I am the expert. And I say that with air quotes, but I still make mistakes and we all will, and we will all continue to make mistakes. It's how you go about them. It's how you correct it and move on and not make it about yourself in that moment. You know, if somebody does point out a mistake or or asks you to do better, to just say, thank you for the feedback, reflect on it and move on. Um, What we end up doing instead is we make it about ourselves. Oh, that wasn't my intention. And I would never be racist. And I would never say I have black friends and and then on and on and on and on. Instead of just saying, thank you for the feedback, take the time to reflect and learn and do better. Well, I was just thinking in Ryan's earlier comment about what happens within staff. What if it was reversed? What if the patient, or you call them a customer or client, I prefer the term patient because it does reflect the power distance. What if the patient asks you, where are you from as a pharmacist? How do you respond to that? Because that's kind of another in. That's kind of a, hey, you're different. I, I want to know if I can trust you kind of question. And I think that's, we have to learn how to reframe those. And um, one easy way to do it is to, to tell them. <laughs> but then I think that can, that can feel bad there. And also, I think we have to have those boundaries. One of the things we really need is um, we, have, we, we can't get too involved socially, give too much information. I can tell you, um, some of the internet harassment and abuse that's gone on because people find out the names of their nurses or or physicians don't do that kind of stuff. Um, I changed my name tag to just my first name. That doesn't really help because how many Helgies do you know? But if somebody comes in and says, this, you know, figure out a way to say, this is not about my training right now. Right now, I want to talk to you about your medications or you know, kind of redirect it. But I think we have to be prepared for those kind of questions because people are going to ask. I, I always, I, I'm trying to figure out when I walk into a pharmacy, who's pharmacist, who's a technician, who's going to make the decision, who can actually sign this prescription on my physician's behalf or make an exception. Like, I don't know any of those things. And so be prepared for those kind of questions. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's because you look different and it's kind of othering and you want to discourage that. Other times people are trying to figure out the rules. I just have to pause to, for a clarification point. Can you tell me what othering is? I've heard you use the term and give me examples of it. I just, can you give me, tell me what othering is? When you make someone feel like they're not part of the group. You are other. It's making someone feel like they're different than the norm. The reminders that they are not the standard, they are not the norm. So even things like, for example, if we think about people with disabilities, right, we might be like, okay, you know, everybody 
come up the stairs, but if you can't, then take the elevator. Like that does right away just point out that there's somebody there that can't, you know? And so um, it's, it's quite othering to just to establish what the norm is and then put somebody outside of that. Whereas if you say it more in general of like, okay, folks, we're going to head up to the second floor. There's some stairs on your left-hand side and there's an elevator on your right. That just lets people know what the options are without one of them being the standard and the other one being the outside or the different or the the other. Whereas if we talk about just offering options to begin with, everybody has the accessible options that they need and nobody's different. Nobody's other. It's just, here's the options to meet the diversity of our, of our world, of our communities, of our workforce, of whatever that ends up being. Um, So we give the options and people take the options that, that work for them, as opposed to here's our standard. And if you don't fit in our standard, then you are other. So I, I, I did mention that I, I thought language would be an important thing. You don't mind me just pointing to that because it's one of the biggest ways of alienating people. Uh, English as a second language, there's English that people are learning. You come to Canada and who, who learns first? The kids. Well, how often do we then ask the kids whether and to translate for interpret, interpret is live, translation is written. Uh, we ask them to interpret. That's really inappropriate because that kid may not understand, may feel embarrassed to ask questions. Like um, we had a case actually, it was, um, um, I think she's Korean, it doesn't matter where she was from, but uh, uh, had hep B um, or hep C, it's something. And so the public health nurse does a follow-up call on the phone. Mom doesn't speak English, 10-year-old son does. So public health nurse asks the question that's on the form, do you use protection when you sleep with your husband? Now, don't ask that of a 10-year-old son to ask of his mother. The way he asked it, though, was kind of fun. And she says, the nurse wants to know if you guys have a, a cover on your bed. <laughs> so you're not going to get this. So anyway, that when we have people that don't speak English, never, ever, ever use family. Now, they'll sometimes want to have family because I trust my family. But what happens is that families tend to edit. They also tend to not understand all the details and they may not catch it all. They're not certified healthcare interpreters. So by relying on them, you do not have informed consent. Like as an ethicist, I can assure you, you do not. So if they want to continue to use their family, fine, but use language line. Use the interpreter to help you. I don't need an interpreter. No, it's for me. So I can keep track of what's being said here. You have to say it that way. I think that's one way to work around that. When in doubt, blame it on your employer. Be like, I'm going to get in so much trouble. Like, I will be in so much trouble if I don't get an interpreter. Like, I wish I could just have your child interpret for you or your friend. But I, I just, my boss will get so mad at me. You know, I just, I really need to bring someone in. Otherwise I could be in lots of trouble. Don't, don't make it about their, their credibility or their, their ability to communicate or convey the message. Make it about standards and expectations of, of the employer and the practice. And, you know, that kind of saves you from having to deal with that interpersonal uh, discomfort. But the difficulty is, and I had a patient just this last week, very difficult decision regarding a family member. And he's been in Canada for, for a while and it speaks, you know, casual English. And we talk about the weather. We say, how are you doing? You know, working. Oh, how's work? Fine. Well, that person doesn't have the English required to have this complex medical decision, which involves considering not continuing treatment for his relative, which is a pretty big thing. And so what we did is we insisted on having uh, an interpreter from his language group. Oh, I don't need that. Yeah, well, it's for us. So the interpreter was able to frame things. And it turned out that 
yeah, there was a lot of misunderstanding of how serious the illness was, what the chances of, of, of a, the, the different treatment options were, options were. And so I think it's, we have, we're not, but we're not linguists. We're not, we can't judge right on the spot whether someone has enough English or not. And maybe sometimes to ask, as in Fatima's case, <laughs> to ask, do you know, do you most speak English is probably, it can be an othering question, but you also have to ask that, does that person have enough English to have informed consent? Not casual English, not saying, hey, how are the flames doing, A? Oh yeah, they speak English. No, they don't. They know how to get on the bus and, and, have, and have coffee with people, but they don't have enough English to talk about those deep, ethical, moral issues that affect their treatment. And so um, I think it's really important that we emphasize using the language because language would seem to me the number one thing about cultural competency. If, you, if you're worried about dealing with people who are different than you, make sure, first of all, that they, that you want, they understand you and they have a fair chance to do it. So, and you don't have time not to do it because interpretation takes time woman she was cantonese speaking she's in her 50s kidney failure comes to the physician um uh the husband brings her in and husband's doing all the interpretation and um they say well could we need to get you on dialysis right away for this and she refused and like her life is now <laughs> trickling away and so we sent in our interpreter her name was yvonne and yvonne goes in and speaks her he says you you i hear you are not consenting to treatment she said yes my husband explained Every three days, they'll take my kidneys out, wash them, and put them back in. Well, I wouldn't agree to that. And, you know, a good thing we caught it because we said, oh, no, it's not the kidneys, it's the blood. And here's a, oh, sure, she is, she, she's alive today. If she hadn't done that and we stuck with that refusal, allowing the husband to interpret, then what, what would happen is that she would have died. So please, please always use interpreter and um, it's take a little bit of time and some clinics don't have a connection with language line or whatever service. It's treating people from diverse populations equally and well and fairly, I think it's a really important thing to do. It's a great action item, I think, for our listeners. Hey, is what are the interpreter services that I have available to me? in my practice. And if I don't, you know, holding maybe our organizations accountable for that. I think this is awesome. Okay. So Helgi, and it's an interpreter, like what about some of the programs? I can go onto an app and translate. Is that appropriate? Okay. Have you tried? <laughs> my, my kids tried to do uh, their French courses in high school using Google interpreter and just they they failed. I mean, I mean, just try it. I mean, you, you, with any uh, uh, speaker and you, puts things in and it comes out in that language and then take that language and translate it back into English and see what it looks like. Yeah, it, it's, you miss, you, the words are the same, but they're all in the wrong order. And the, you can, all the nuance, all the complexity is, is not there. So yeah, you cannot, you, you can rely on Google Translate for things like, hey, did you have a good sleep today? Are you, <laughs> and do you want some water? That's fine. Where is the bathroom? Yeah, where's the bathroom? <laughs> yeah, we have to, when it comes to consent, and explaining the contraindications or the uh, how you should take a, a, a medication, I wouldn't leave that up to the chance that they might understand. Absolutely, yeah. With uh, any type of interpretation services, like it needs to be somebody who's medically trained. Um, you know, even if they are fluent in the language, like forget a, an alpha, mm -hmm. like somebody who's fluent in the language. Maybe they're not a family member. Maybe they're an unbiased third party. But if they're not trained in medical medical conversations and medical dialogue, then, you know, they can't interpret. And then I would just say to keep in mind, too, that 
communication barriers are so much more than just language. You know, there are so many different things that play into people being able to communicate and understand providers. You can be speaking the same language as your provider and still have a hard time understanding all the medical terminology they're sharing. Or maybe they've just shared some pretty big, pretty heavy um, news. Maybe it's a new diagnosis and, you know, you're just kind of stuck and you're processing and now everything they've said after has been tuned out. So the best way to overcome communication barriers is to check in and say, how does that all land? You know, is there anything you'd like me to repeat? Let's go back. Did you understand this specific part? Are you clear on the instructions on what you need to do now? Have them repeat it back to you. So even if it's not a language barrier, there can still be other forms of communication barrier. What I appreciate in what you just said, Fatima, is that you've also centered the person again. It's about what they understand and what they want moving forward. And I think about how I've been trained as a pharmacist. Um, the one, of, one of my favorite questions when I'm starting a counsel on a patient is, what did your doctor tell you about this medication? And all I've asked <laughs> is what did someone else tell you? to do or about this medication. And really, I should be checking in with them. Hey, what do you understand? What do you want to do here? What's important to you and, and move the, the conversation forward that way? Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about when cultural norms and maybe certain cultural behaviors and expectations might be in conflict with the care that we need to provide to our patients and how we as pharmacy professionals might be able to navigate that. So, you know, if a pharmacy professional is on the end of someone saying, if they don't want to be included in the decision-making process, or how you gave us that example, you tell me what to do. Or if they see the person standing in front of them, and like I've experienced this as a female, you know, you're a female pharmacist, I would prefer to talk to a male. How do we navigate this? Okay, two really different questions. Okay. <laughs> team and I are just coming out with this toolkit on, we're, what we're calling it is a toolkit for, for managing when patients make requests for providers of specific demographic characteristics. So uh, whether you're, you know, I want a male doctor, I want a female doctor. Uh, we had a traumatic case just very recently in, in my hospital where um, a Muslim man refused to allow a male doctor to look at his wife and put the wife and baby at incredible risk. And so how do you always say you're, I don't want someone of your color. I had a, I had a patient, um, one of my first consoles was at the, um, it was from Sri Lanka. And he said, I want a 23-year-old white nurse. <laughs> or two months ago in the Emerge, someone said, you're too fat to care for me. I want a skinny nurse. Like people say all these really ugly and um, we think they're hateful. But I, what I've learned from Fatima is that we have to ask questions to figure where that comes from. To say, you know, I understand this is what you're asking for. Tell, give me a, uh, tell me why this is important for you. Because... You know, for some people, if someone had been sexually assaulted and you're going to put them in a room with someone who's the same gender of the person who just assaulted them and closed the door, that could be re-traumatizing. And so that might be a chance when you might change it. But others, we don't just say, oh, well, you get it. I, I was helping out with the uh, masks at the, at the front of the hospital and somebody comes up and the woman beside me was an Ismaili Muslim and he gets up, he says, I'm not taking a mask from you and looks to me to give him a mask. Do I just say, and give it to them just to a, because there's a big lineup of people. 
do I stop everything and deal with it? Um, how does how does that leave my colleague here feeling being talked to like that? And so what's the way to respond to that um, is I think a really important question. I was going to ask if there's a wait list for this tool that you're speaking of too. <laughs> okay, Fatima, tell us more. Yeah, we've called it requests for identity concordance. And that's exactly it, right? It's we can't have a one size fits all solution to these types of requests because the nature of the request might be so different. On the one hand, you might have a racist bigot that's like, I don't want to deal with a black nurse because they're uneducated and I'm not dealing with them. But then on the other hand, you might have someone that comes in and says, I'm Indigenous, I need an Indigenous provider that can understand my needs. And they're not being a racist bigot, they're someone coming from trauma. So there's a difference in understanding where that person is coming from. You know, is it coming from a place of trauma? Is it supported by research? And that's a big part of the work that we're talking about is, you know, in this document, is it someone saying they're traumatized um, because they don't like a group of people based on a stereotype? Or is this, is this person part of an identity that is by research um, proven to be a marginalized or discriminated or traumatized group of people? So for example, we know that there's a lot of research in healthcare that um, where Black women are treated um, uh, poorly in the healthcare system, where Indigenous people are treated poorly, uh, where trans people are treated poorly. So, of course, those groups of people are going to come into the healthcare system probably being quite traumatized and needing that extra support and, be, and making requests to help uh, ensure their safety. Whereas on the other hand, if someone says, well, I'm traumatized because all uh, Muslims are terrorists and I don't want a Muslim provider, that's not trauma. That's not something that's supported by research. So we would definitely look at those kind of different nuances in determining where the request is coming from. Um, and like how you said, asking the question again, keeping that open-ended question. Thank you for sharing that this is important to you. Please tell me a little bit more about what difference it'll make for you. Um, you know, and, and getting that information from that person directly. Maybe we think they're being a racist bigot and they maybe there's a good chance they are. Or maybe there's something we completely overlooked because, again, there's so many different parts of someone's identity. We might think that this part of their identity is why they're being a racist bigot, but maybe there's another part of their identity that has a physical need that we're not aware of or a cognitive mental need that we're not aware of. So, again, we want to be able to ask those questions of why is this important for you? And then to let them know, you know, if, if it is them truly being a racist bigot, then thank you for sharing that with me. These are the providers we have. Our providers are all trained, they're all competent, and they all meet uh, the standards of our practice, and they can deliver the service that, that you require. If it is somebody who genuinely needs support um, and, and another alternative option, then thank you for sharing that with me. I'm gonna go back to my leader or my supervisor, and I'm gonna see what we can do to help you. If we can't help you, then I'm gonna see what, what other alternatives we can offer. Maybe it's having a secondary provider in the room as well. Maybe it's um, having protective services or, or security on standby or whatever else that they need to feel safe if we can't meet the request that they're asking for, but we probably would want to if we could. And there is no one size fits all answer. It's not a yes, let's just accommodate everyone or no, we don't accommodate any of these requests because we also don't wanna do harm to people. So just thinking of what are all the nuances and all the considerations we want to take into account when we make a decision on whether we should or shouldn't accommodate that request. And then if we can't, even if we should, if we can't, then what do we do? And how do, how do we problem solve with them? And how do we help them find other solutions so that they still feel safe, even if we couldn't accommodate the request based on resources and staffing and so forth? 
so yeah, we'll we'll definitely happily share share a copy once that's final and, and ready to go. I heard you say none of this is a one size fits all situation. And I just think we should pause to, to remember that, right? None of this, none of any of what we've been talking about in these podcasts is a one size fits all and how important it is for us to ask, inquire, be curious, right? Find out. Can we just go back to the racist bigot situation? I'm, I'm comfortable with the tell me more. I just want to go back one more time to the response to that. You know, I've, I've got a big in front of me. I'm not going to get anywhere. What do I say here? Well, it's important that we don't refuse care. We also have to protect our staff. People don't realize that's an equally important value. We have to care for patients, but we also can't put our staff at risk of harm. And being talked to like that, being <laughs> racially abused or harassed, that's psychological damage. And so we have to protect staff from that. So how do you respond? And I think, I think Billy, you can't say that. Well, what's the likely response? That's going to escalate matters. Don't be a racist. Well, you don't, I mean, that's not going to work out really well. So you really have to, I think, practice one's response to that and say, all of our staff are equally trained. We're happy to provide care with, to you with the staff that we have available. If you don't like that, you are free to go somewhere else. This is, we're not ever going to refuse care because that's what we can't do as professionals. We can't refuse care, but we can offer you care where it's safe to provide care, but here it's not safe. And I'm very happy. And from an ethics perspective, you're on, on very solid grounds to say, um, you know, I don't feel safe right now. Um, I won't be able to, to provide service. That, that's the other thing. It's just, I don't feel safe right now. It's not, you can't say it to me. I don't feel safe right now. Or I'm going to have to end this. Um, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Um, um, that might be, and I think it's really, really bad. But the other um, is we have to support our staff. And then when that happens, we can do a lot to reduce. We can figure out where people are and establish the expectations. We might reduce, but stuff is going to happen. And that's when we really have to give the chance for the staff to talk about their feelings. We have to debrief these. But sometimes we're too busy. We're all we're rushing things. We don't want to pay extra <laughs> time on the person's uh, uh, clock. But we, but I think it's really important that we debrief these things because if these feelings build up and they're not resolved, they build up, they build up, they build up, and then you get some pretty serious cases of burnout. I'll just add to that as well that um, in the toolkit we do um, talk as part of the considerations on how to respond is to definitely check in with the worker that's impacted or the provider that's impacted and their safety of whether they actually want to provide care to this person if they've been targeted and if for whatever reason they are the only one that can provide care then what are the safety measures we can put in place to support that provider so that they they're able to provide care in a way that's safe for them and also is the quality of care that they would provide when they're in a good um, in a good state, because we know that when someone is as targeted or treated differently or experiencing that, um, it will impact the, the way that they interact with a patient because we're human at the end of the day. So it's putting all the support mechanisms in place for them. And sometimes we can't, that's the person who's going to provide care. And you know, Fatima said something about making it safe, put two people in. Sometimes having a, having somebody beside you uh, in one group, uh, I forget where it was, but they had what they called the code pink. When someone was being harassed, they called the code pink and other people came and stood right beside them. Didn't say anything, just stood beside them. And I, I had heard that there was a lot of abuse happening at, at the screening stations at our hospital on the West End entrance. So I went there. 
But me, gray hair and, 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 and stuff, standing beside people, I didn't see any. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, that one experience with the guy who said, I won't take a mask from you. But so just having someone there as a witness, having somebody um, there, I think is, is a way to keep some of our staff safe. I really appreciate this conversation because we have spent so much time talking about providing safe spaces and it is as important. There's duality here in providing safe spaces. We also have to feel safe uh, as healthcare providers. So thank you for that. Okay. I'm going to stay on this theme of maybe some of the, um, pitfalls uh, associated with providing culturally safe care. And I know personally, I, I'm always coming with the best interest of the patient at heart. Like that is, I'm genuinely, that's what I have. Um, however, I might be unknowingly doing things. And already I've had a couple of examples in this conversation, right? Assuming that basic English is going to be enough for us to communicate this idea of, you know, I, ha- I have reality and you have culture. I think that's another example of maybe a cultural safety pitfall. I'm wondering if both of you can give us some examples to help us understand when maybe even as well-intentioned humans, we might be falling a little bit flat when it comes to cultural safety. I would say, um, yeah, one of the big pitfalls that I come across is, again, um, assumptions. Um, so assuming what people need and, you know, just kind of reiterating, you know, throughout this discussion of why it's important to, to ask questions and be curious and be open instead of guess and assume. And then the other thing I would think uh, um, is a big pitfall is, is again, that, that emphasis on intentions instead of impact. We are all well-meaning people, um, especially people that are in the medical world that are in, in some type of service provision of helping others. Um, those are well-meaning people who don't want to cause harm. I don't think anyone decides to go to pharmacy school because they want to cause harm unless unless there's a few outliers. But for the most part, I think we're all, um, you know, anyone in this this space or in this sector is well-meaning and wants to help others. And the intention is is usually good. Um, it's the impact and, and the way that things are interpreted and the impact we have on other people is where there's usually challenges. And when we realize that impact or when we're when we're told about that impact, we go back to the intention and we usually keep going back to saying, well, that wasn't my intention. Well, I would never intend to do that. And so I think one thing we, we should start focusing a little bit more on is the impact that we have on other people. And, you know, although we might be well-meaning, we might have good intentions, just like the nurse that asked if my mom speaks English, she has good intentions. She's trying to get us support so that my mom can get proper interpretation services. The intentions were great, but the impact that it had on us was, was different. Right. And so being very mindful of the impact. Again, having that uh, situational awareness that you, when you say something and you're noticing it's not landing the way you intended it, uh, att- intended for it to land, then to take that moment to reflect and say, is there another way that this could have been interpreted? Or is there another way I could have said this to get the message across in a way that is not so open for interpretation? And so just really being uh, mindful about the impact. And where we see this come up a lot is around things like microaggressions. So when we make a joke or even a compliment that's well-intended and ends up making somebody feel othered or making somebody feel different, that is a microaggression. And we often will look at that and say, but I was just joking or I was just complimenting them. Again, good intentions, but not so good impact. So um, just being very, very mindful of the difference between the two and how we can be, um, we can be intentional and in having a positive impact on others. 
Um, a number of things that Fatima has said uh, should come back to asking the right questions. Don't make the assumptions. And what I was talking about, fight, figure out what the identity of that individual in front of you. They may look like they're part of it, but you know, passport and skin color is a very poor predictor of what's going on inside someone's head. Asking questions to get to their understanding of the issue and in, in a very respectful kind of a way, but it's those intelligent questions that are the key, I think, to being creating a, a, an inclusive space because you, you need to figure out where that person in front of you, how they're conceptualizing the illness, how they expect you to behave as a, as a healthcare professional, and what their role in their health is. And Fatima, I was just thinking assumptions have come up again, a common theme throughout our conversations. And I was thinking about the assumptions that I make. And probably I'm going to even suggest maybe bias, my some of the personal bias that I bring in mm -hmm. when someone stands in front of me that might look a certain way. And I assume that my experience with people that looked that way in the past, I'm bringing all of that hay. So I need to check all of those assumptions. Well, and I would say to kind of, um, to realize that everybody is susceptible to having assumptions made about them as well, right? So if you look at, let's say, your family unit or the people you spend your time with, you might have share similar identities with them in some way, but you also have many differences. I think we've all heard about the family members that we see once a year on, on, a, on a holiday and they are family and we have the same origins and the same identities and very different values and very different beliefs and views <laughs> on things, right? And so would you want someone to look at your family name and make an assumption about you because everyone they've dealt with from that family has this certain view or this certain opinion? So we are all susceptible. We are all victims of assumption and we are all victims to making assumptions as well. Um, and the reality is if you have a brain, you have bias. We all have bias. It's about how aware we are of it and how much we allow it to guide us. Our brain actually takes in about 11 million pieces of information per second through our senses. And we're only consciously aware of 40 pieces of those information. So that still leaves about 11 million pieces of information that we're not consciously aware of taking in every single second. So that is a lot of room for bias, a lot of room for assumption, a lot of room for things to creep in that we're not even aware of. There's a, I'm sure most of you have heard of it. If not, there's an implicit bias test that Harvard has and such a great reflection tool to realize where we have bias. And there's also a similar activity that I do when I, when I conduct unconscious bias training is, is a word association activity where I'll just pop words on a screen and get people to think of the first thing that comes to mind. And even as someone who's facilitated this activity so much, there are still word associations, image associations, emotion associations that come up while I deliver that, that session for other people. Um, and so that, that is, it's always there. It's just your level of awareness. And what are you doing to unlearn the biases that you have to relearn new ones and to educate yourself and how and where they even come from and where they stem from to begin with. So it's always, it's a continuous process. It's a lifelong process and we never, we never master it. There is no such thing as mastering this, um, but really just being as, as aware as you can be and as, uh, as intentional as you can be. And that that's, what's important. And then of course, to give ourselves grace when we make those mistakes that are inevitable. Um, to give ourselves the grace and, and to take them as learning opportunities to, to reflect and, and do better. It really like um, hit home for me, maybe in this, these last few minutes, but something that really 
has been a theme through our whole conversation is that again like looking at the interactions that we may have with patients especially as pharmacy professionals where it's only like a few minutes long like our interactions with them our communications with them isn't isn't just confined to those few minutes because again like looking at like our our intentions versus what the impact is how we could have uh, had a better conversation to make sure that the appropriate information was understood and and stuff like that is that is that reflection piece is like we need to like during the interaction have that active listening always going on but then afterwards reflecting back on that and just trying to process it so that the next time you have an, another interaction like that may be similar you have that uh, as one of the skills that you might have Absolutely. yeah you've summarized it perfectly um thank you for that Ryan. Helgi, Fatima, is there anything else, any wrap-up thoughts, things that you kind of wanted to leave our listeners with today as we wrap up this episode? I would say the biggest thing, you know, I would hope that people take away from tuning in is really being mindful of the assumptions they're making, asking questions in an open-ended way, and just being present in the moment when you interact with people. I, that would I could say that no better myself. That person in front of you is a very complex uh, creature that has many different programs running simultaneously. It's a dynamic. They are making sense of the world in the best way they can. And your role to be effective is to understand how they see that their illness, but also their interaction with you and learning how to unpack that quickly using questions and, and, and uh, that we've re referenced earlier, I think that's the key, that the person in front of you is an individual and is not really accurately summarized by the various stereotypes that could be applied to them. Okay, thank you. Fatima and Helgi, thank you so much for this conversation today. I've learned so much from your personal experiences and your expertise, and I am grateful that we were able to share this conversation. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great talking to, to both of you. Thanks for having us. And to everyone listening, thank you for being here. Thank you for your commitment to being the best pharmacist and best pharmacy techs that you can be. I hope that what we've shared today will help you both professionally and personally. These conversations have really made me realize how proud I am to be a pharmacy professional and to be committed to this work. It's really important work. I'm looking forward to the conversations going and seeing what we all do next. Thanks all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacy Perspectives, Providing Safer Spaces. Our podcast hosts are Kelly, Kim, and Ryan. This podcast is a joint project created by Alberta College of Pharmacy and Continuing Professional Development for Pharmacy Professionals based out of the University of Saskatchewan. Our producers are Mary Fraser and Pamela Timmonson. Editing was done by Anwen Dyko and our music is by BJ Cat.